Good morning. Hope you've had a good week. Good weekend. We finally got some rain, which is good. Uh, colors have been beautiful. It's been a beautiful fall. Thankful to the Father for all he gives us. This morning, we're going to continue in our sermon series. We've been looking at our relationship uh, to God. We're going to look at relationship to each other, and, and then it will take us to look at our relationship with the community. This morning, we're going to continue our look at our relationship to each other. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn there. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. As you turn there, uh, I'll share a little story with you. I remember when I got my first car, it was early, mid-1990s, and uh, I was a 85 Toyota Corolla, five-speed on the floor, pop-up headlights. It was pretty sweet. And uh, when, you, when you get your first car, I mean, you, you taste the freedom. It's like, that's it. I can go now and, and go wherever I want to go and do what I want to do to an extent, you know. Uh, but I remember getting that car, and me and three buddies said, hey, one of us has wheels. Let's go see a movie. Let's go get something to eat and hang out. And so that's what we do. And uh, we have a good time. Around 9 o'clock, we're starting to, to head back home. And uh, I grew up in Baton Rouge. And so we're, we're downtown Baton Rouge. I lived outside of the city. And so we jump on the interstate heading back. And interstate three lanes wide. And we're approaching this section of interstate where it's, it's going to incline. And all of a sudden, my car just dies. And I, I kind of panic. I don't know what to do. I, I, I tell my buddies, like, y'all, the car just died. And they don't believe me. Uh, they think I'm just joking. I was like, no, 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 it's, it really died. And so because of the incline, our speed drops very quickly. We're in the left-hand lane on an elevated section, so there is no shoulder. And we are just stranded near the top of this incline, uh, all the way to the left of the interstate. So turn the flashers, flashers on, and now they know that I'm not kidding. Uh, and so we're trying to figure out what to do. We don't have cell phones. Like, they didn't exist. And so they jump out the car, and they take off. Like, they leave me. And they're like, we're going to go try and find a phone. And so I'm just kind of sitting on the side of the interstate, uh, don't know what to do. Cars are flying by, honking. Uh, saw some friends come by, like, what are y'all doing? It's like, oh, man, we're just hanging out, you know? Um, and, and so cars eventually begin to stop behind my car, waiting for a chance to get over. And there is a four-car pileup right behind my car. My car was not uh, hit and no one was hurt. But come to find out, there's a, a particular belt in our vehicles called the timing belt. And if that doesn't work, the car doesn't work. And so my timing belt just shredded. And the, the, the purpose of the timing belt is it just it links all these pieces together inside your engine. And so everything is running together. It keeps everything in sync. It makes everything run in harmony so that it's functioning properly and your car runs. When there's no timing belt, nothing works. It's a disaster. 
And so I was just like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is a nightmare. This is terrible. Some, my friends finally get a phone. They call my parents. My parents are freaking out. They're flying out there. And so I'm just kind of by myself until my friends come back or the police arrive or whatever. And now there's an accident. People walking all over the place. And uh, there was this, this gentleman in one of the vehicles. And he was a big fella. And in 10th grade, 11th grade, I mean, I was maybe 120 pounds. And so this guy walks over and sees me and is like, hey, whose car is this right here? And so I did what, what you would expect a cocky, arrogant adolescent to do in this moment. I puffed my chest out, and I lied to him. I don't know, man. <laughs> And I just walked away as fast as I could. <laughs> Life preservation mode. But I learned when things aren't working harmoniously, things can get really bad really fast. And this is what is happening in the church in Philippi. There is disunity. There is discord. There is there is something happening that is preventing them from serving together in harmony. There, there is friction in their relationship. The timing belt has broke. And so we're going to walk through this passage, and Paul addresses this. And he, he gives them and he gives us a, a guide of what it looks like. To, to serve and live in unity, in harmony with one another. And so let's just, we're going to break this passage up. We're going to look at it in a few different sections. Let's read verses 1 through 4 first. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy... By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul understands that there are issues in the local church that are causing disunity, and he's, he's going to address it. So he gives us three, three things that they find present. Selfish ambition, personal prestige, and the focus on the self. Selfish ambition, people are, are literally just, they're, they're doing anything and everything that they know to do to try and get ahead. doesn't matter who gets hurt along the way, they're only worried about trying to get ahead, climb the ladder. Personal prestige is just concerned about what people think about them. That's, that's all that matters. I want to make sure that everyone understands and thinks and believes that I'm a good person. Oh, you, you know, Brian's amazing. He'll do this. He'll do that. You know, he's amazing. I'm just concerned about what other people think about me. Focus on the self. Narcissism runs rampant in our society still to this day. We're just so consumed with ourselves. We're only worried about ourselves so much. It just... We could be such a selfish people. And Paul says, this is not how God has designed us to live together. This is not how God has designed us to, to serve together. 
So Paul gives us this guide, this direction on what it, what it means to be unified. He says, be like-minded, have the same love, be of one accord, have the same mind. The love that he talks about here is agape love. It is an unconditional love. This love first comes from Christ. It's not a love that we are born with. It's a love that we receive. And only through receiving this love from Jesus, then can we offer this to those around us. It doesn't matter what anyone does to us. It doesn't matter how we feel. It is an unconditional love. Jesus, no matter what we've done loves us. There's nothing that we can do that outpaces his love for us. One accord. Paul's telling us literally to row in the same direction. We must be going the same direction. Our community group had a lake day this past summer, and the lake is just a beautiful piece of property, beautiful lake, and the lake was built for competitive skiing and so there was a ramp in the lake and I've never been around one I've never seen one and so I knew I wanted to get out there and check this thing out so they had some canoes and I'm hopping in the canoe and my daughter Blair sees I'm getting the canoe to go out there and she's like dad can I come with you I'm like absolutely come get in the boat you get in the front I'll get in the back so that way I can steer us with the paddle I said look we know where we're going we're gonna go to this ramp I want to see this ramp you start paddling and then I'll start paddling after you in, in a little bit. So she starts to go, and we're moving. She's doing a great job. And so I kind of set our course with the paddle, point us right to the, the ramp, and then I pick up her rhythm and start paddling right in rhythm with her. And without missing a beat, she said, Woo, this is a lot faster. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you have one mind, you're in full accord, and you're rowing in the same direction. We fixed our eyes on our goal. We knew exactly where we were going to go, and we worked together, and we got there. And if we're going to paddle differently, and she's wanting to go here, I'm wanting to go there. We're never going to get to where we want to go. And Paul tells us, you've got to be thinking the same way. We have to be in one accord what is our goal? Our primary goal as believers is to know Christ and to make him known. Everything that we do is to honor and glorify Jesus. It has nothing to do with me and you. It has everything to do with Jesus. I want to honor him. want him to be high and lifted up and allow him to have his way with us. Paul reemphasizes this same mind. He says it twice. It's kind of important. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul also wrote this. He wrote to the church in Rome. I appeal to you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Elizabeth Elliot wrote, a renewed mind has an utterly changed conception, not only of reality, but of possibility. 
a turn away from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom God provides as a whole set of values based not on the human word but on Christ's. Impossibilities become possibilities. When we are in lockstep with what Jesus wants us to do, when we are same mind, one accord, loving one another unconditionally, things that we think might be impossible become possible because it's not us doing it, it's Jesus doing it, and we get to be a part of it. That's his invitation to us. Same mind, having the same mind incorporates the will and the emotions into a comprehensive outlook which affects the attitude. Our attitude will determine our actions. It could also determine your inaction. What are our actions to be? Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If we're going to do this, if we're going to be unified, serving and living together, it has to begin with humility. True humility is birthed out of our true, honest perspective about ourselves in relation to God. Paul continues in Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. <clears throat> there is nothing that I have that I've provided for myself. There's nothing that I have that I've earned. There's nothing that I have that I deserve. Everything that I have, I have because of the grace of God. And that applies to each and every one of us. And when we get to a place where we understand this, that every little thing, I don't care what it is, every little thing that you and I have, we only have it because God has given it to us. So then, looking to the interest of others comes from a place of humility. It is not a call to self-forgetfulness or self-neglect. It is simply a call to trust that the Father will care for you no matter what, because his love for you never ends. In Matthew 6, 25 through 34, Jesus says, why are you worried? Why, why are you anxious? Don't you understand that your Father loves you? Do you see the birds of the air? Do you see the flowers of the field? They are never without. If your father sees them and provides them what they need, don't you think he will do the same for you? You are much more valuable. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. I'm not, I'm not just neglecting myself. I'm trusting the Father because he will never forget me. And I know that if he's going to take care of me, then I have the freedom 
to worry and be concerned about the needs of others and not just my own. To look means to make something an aim or an object of concern. We are not called to simply do good things and considering the interests of others, but called to receive a new heart that offers a desire to do good things. For Jesus, it's always a matter of the heart, not the task. The task should be an overflow of what Jesus has done in your heart. Luke 9, 23 and 24, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The only way that we can do what we're called to do is if we receive the heart of Christ. We must receive what Christ has for us to take all of him if we're going to be able to accomplish these things. It's not in our own power. It's not by our own ability. It's only in and through the person of Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, what's coming between me and Jesus? What is it in your life that needs to die? It could be a number of things. Lust, pride, selfishness, fear, worry, doubt, greed, vanity, comfort. What is it in your life that needs to die? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to surrender to Jesus? Uh, it's an Old Testament book of Esther. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful story about God's faithfulness. <clears throat> Esther, uh, along with her uncle, Mordecai, and the Jewish people are in Persia. And the king of Persia is having this big party. And at the end of the party, he asks for the queen to come in so he can show her off. And she wants nothing to do with that. And so she doesn't go to the party. And the king gets pretty upset about this, so he decides, time for a new queen. And so they go through this process, and Esther is chosen to be queen. In the process of all this, Mordecai overhears about a plot to kill the king. He tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and the king's life is saved, and so he is very grateful for Mordecai. And after all this... Gentleman enters the scene, his name is Haman, and because of the king, Haman is elevated to a very high position, and he decides that he wants everybody, when they see him, to bow before him. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to bow to Haman, and so Haman is infuriated, so he goes to the king, gets the king to uh, declare a decree that Mordecai And all of his people, the Jewish people, are to be executed. This includes the queen. And so Mordecai hears about this. He goes into a state of grieving, sends word to Queen Esther. Esther, you need to go to the king and tell him what's happening. And so she pushes back. She's reluctant. She says, no, I I don't think that's a good idea because you're not allowed to approach the king 
without a royal decree. If you do, probably going to be killed. <clears throat> and so Mordecai sends another message back. He says, listen, deliverance is going to come one way or another, through you or somebody else. Perhaps God has put you here for such a time as this. And so Esther courageously says, then if I perish, I perish. So she goes to the king, she throws a big party for the king, and she tells him what's going on. It's like, hey, I just need to let you know that uh, Mordecai, who, by the way, saved your life, and all of his people, the Jews, they're to be executed. Oh, I'm Jewish too. And so the king's like, whoa, 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 who's doing this? And she says, that evil man, Haman. And the king's infuriated, so he changes course, and he says, the Jewish people will not be executed. Haman, you will be executed. Esther put her life on the line, literally. She was reluctant, then filled with faith and courage. She goes before the king, finds favor in the king's eyes. God protects her. God protects his people. God rescues his people. Esther had a choice to make. Do I just look out for my own interests? Because I don't want to die. Instead, she looked to the interests of others. She trusted the Father, and she, she went, <clears throat> and she put her life on the line, said, whatever happens to me, happens to me. I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. And she watched the Lord do something amazing and rescue and redeem his people. Interesting thing about the book of Esther, it's the only book of the Bible where God's name is not mentioned. And you think, how in the world is that even possible? Tim Mackey, he is a, an Old Testament scholar, he's a biblical scholar and professor, and he said the author of Esther is doing something really interesting here. The author is inviting the reader to look for God's activity. Is drawing the reader in. Could it be even going back to Esther that God's heart is for us to look for his activity, to look where God is at work and what he's doing and accept his invitation? to be a part of what he is doing, to look to the interest of others. Let's look and see even a more beautiful picture of this. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see the word form used multiple times in this passage of Scripture. Verses 6 and 7 says form of God and form of a servant. The word for form here is the same in both verses. It's morphe. It is unchanging. This is incredible, what Paul's doing here. 
Paul is explaining to us the fullness of Jesus. It's really hard for us to wrap our minds around this. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard for us to comprehend. It's, it's, it's outside of our ability to comprehend. But Paul paints this picture for us, and it's absolutely beautiful. Jesus, form of God, unchanging, morphe, unchanging, is fully divine. Has always been, will always be. Verse 7, he is fully human, takes on the form of a servant, unchanging. In his core, he is human. Jesus is fully human and fully divine all at the same time. And in verse 8, he takes on this human form that just like you and I, we're born and we grow. We, we eat and we drink and we get strength and we grow in knowledge and understanding. Luke 2.52, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's the changing part. At his core, he is unchanging. He is fully divine and fully human. We see in Jesus a truer Esther. Esther points us to Jesus Jesus perfectly fulfills all things and points us to the Father. We see Esther approach the king's throne with reluctance, but eventually with courage and faith. And we see Christ without hesitation leave the king's throne, leave his position, leave his rank, leave his privilege to descend to the lowliest in order to serve, to seek, and to save the lost. To die a criminal's death on a cross, becoming a curse, Galatians 3.13 tells us, so that we can be forgiven and redeemed, brought into fellowship with God the Father, and receive all that he has for us so that we can share this with others. Jesus was humble and obedient. He did not consider the fact that he was completely divine as an escape clause. He did not let anything prevent him from doing exactly what the Father wanted him to do. And praise Jesus, that's how he lived. If Jesus for a moment decided that it was about him and not the Father, none of us are here today. None of us have hope. None of us have life. But because of Jesus and his glory, chose not to consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, so that in obedience and humility he denies himself, so that he dies on a cross, so that when we call out to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and we are totally redeemed, brought in right standing with the Father. He is our example. That's our model, to be like Jesus, to treat others the way Jesus has treated us in humility, in grace, in mercy. Jesus came to give us life. He modeled for us the life that we are to live. He gives us everything so that we can give it away. Count others more significant than yourself and look to the interest of others. 
I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come up. We're going to read verses 9, 10, and 11 as they come. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All that we have read this morning is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Jesus is highly exalted. It literally means that he is super exalted, that no one will ever be exalted higher than Christ. And it contrasts the lowliness of the cross. Jesus is given a name that is above every name. He is Savior and he is Lord. We see Jesus as creator. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is our mediator, our great high priest. He is our Messiah king, our Messiah servant, our Messiah deliverer, our Messiah who is God in the flesh. He is our savior. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And he is coming again, and he is the one who makes all things new. His name is Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is our posture. To worship Jesus. If we are to accomplish unity of any kind, it must begin with our worship of Jesus. Understanding that he gave up everything so that you and I could have everything. That he cares for you. That he loves you more than you could ever imagine. He has not and he will not forget you. I do know this. I know that Jesus can be trusted. And that you can trust him. In that trust, it's our opportunity and our invitation to surrender all that we are to him. To let go of what we're hanging on to. To give that to him and let him have his way. To be obedient to Jesus. Obedient to the Father. Following his lead. Letting him guide us. And through Jesus, we are able to look to the interests of others. We're able to see the needs of those around us and step up and help and minister and serve and care, not worried about what anyone else thinks of us or how we might look or what if I fail, what if I don't know enough, what, what if I'm just not educated enough or, or what if I don't know what to do. 
In these moments, you're relying too much on yourself and not on the Father. He just calls us to trust Him and be obedient. To humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, allowing Him to exalt you at the proper time. Cast all those anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He cares for you. I would invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to pray and we're going to worship. If this begins with worshiping Jesus, that's what we're going to do. And I would encourage you um, to respond as the Lord has led you to respond. If it's to stand and sing, worship, to sit, to kneel, to pray, confess, repent, whatever it is. This is, this is our time. This is our time. Will you pray with me? Jesus, all that we have is because of you. You are the king. You are the ruler. It's not us. We are at your mercy. All that we have is because of you. If there's any selfishness in us, if there's any greed, if there's any vanity, if there's any pride, whatever it is, Father, we, we, we lay at your feet. We repent of these things and we trust in you and we love you and we worship you. Thank you for loving us, Jesus. Thank you for being kind and patient and gracious and merciful. We pray this in your name. Amen.